Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to another edition of the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. In Los Angeles, California, I'm the professor, Matt Perkins. And joining us straight out of the film room in Nashville, Tennessee, it's the coach, Corey Burton. What's going on, man? Uh, well, literally straight out of the film room this time. Uh, sometimes that's uh, sometimes it's a bit of a stretch, but literally out of the film room, we're planning for our next big game, which is kind of like Navy playing Ohio State. So it's going to be a... <laughs> Gonna be a tough one, but you know, I think if we, uh, I think if we can play as hard, I think we can give ourselves a chance. So I'm excited. You never, you truly never know, as uh, as evidenced by this weekend. Yeah, coach, you, um, your, your Lebanon High School Blue Raiders got a uh, uh, Blue Devils. Sorry, should say got a uh, a big 35 to seven win for your uh, one up in the good column for the first time this year. So congratulations to you. Um, I appreciate it. But we'd be remiss if we did not introduce the third amigo in the second city, a man who was absolutely devastated by Army's loss this weekend. It's our intrepid blogger from Big Ten and County, Josh Cook. Yeah, man, you know, Army was looking pretty good. They played that game up at Buffalo. I thought they would uh, be able to keep their undefeated hot start rolling, but uh, they had a fourth quarter meltdown, gave up gave up a lead, and then ultimately lost in overtime. Tough pill to swallow, but... Uh, yeah, plenty of, plenty of days ahead for Army. And let's be honest, the target for them was a bowl game, not a 12-0 undefeated season. Yeah, definitely. I know they're still having a, a very nice season. Also, to go nice to see a Lance Leopold squad come together for a nice win. So, um, well, it was a ton of great games across the country all weekend. So we're going to get right into it with some quick slants. So, Josh, you're up first. Yeah, you know that every now and then on our show, we'd love to just do a quick kind of rundown of conferences where they are. So my first quick slant will be the Big Ten East. Now that each team has played at least three games, some have even played conference games. So uh, starting with the three-headed monster, Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State, we'll obviously be talking Sparty in a little bit, but uh, Michigan just throttled Penn State. They're off to a hot start that Colorado game Looks even better as the Buffs went into Eugene and got a huge win. Uh, so Michigan's looking pretty good. Obviously, they had the big test against Wisconsin's defense in a week. Learn a little bit more about them. Uh, Ohio State, they still have that win over Oklahoma. They seem like the team to beat still. No questions about that. Uh, and then we get into a little bit of a mix. You know, Penn State, I've been down on Franklin. They've had a rash of injuries but that's kind of an impatient fan base. They've had a lot of top 25 recruiting classes, and they have to be looking at some of the other teams that are surviving injury issues, Wisconsin, one of them, and they just can't put it together. And that Michigan game was never competitive yesterday. That's a bad sign for them. Uh, moving through the East, you've got Maryland. They were off this week. They were 3-0, and still a nice hot start. They're kind of like that Army team. You know, a bowl is the target for them. We don't really care about their overall win-loss, just baby steps for them. Uh, Rutgers, difficult, difficult game against Iowa. Their their offense just could not get going. And then uh, losing Janarian Grant, their biggest playmaker. Um, I have yet to hear how long he's out, but his ankle was in such bad pain that they had to cart him off. So it, it is probably one of the more severe ankle sprains, maybe even a broken ankle, but I, I've looked. I still haven't seen an injury announcement for him. And then Indiana, oh, what a rough game for them. They had a, a chance to make a statement with a home game against an improved Wake Forest team, and they just couldn't get out of their own way. They, they threw an interception in the end zone. They threw a pick six. Uh, it was just one of those days for Indiana. We'll see if they can improve, but uh, that felt like a big step back after a nice 2-0 start for them. 
Yeah, you know, that was uh, that, that was definitely a rough day for the Hoosiers because we're all kind of high on the Hoosiers, and we think that they're going to have a good season, and they still can. It was a non-conference game, you know, not the end of the world. And Wake Forest quietly having a very nice uh, opening run to start the season. So, all right, Coach, what you got for your first slant? Well, I, I did uh, – on Thursday I did the quick slant um, about the South Florida – Florida State uh, – Sunshine State matchup. And uh, so I'm going to follow up kind of just tell you how the game went because we were kind of unsure uh, with what South Florida was trending upwards and Florida State just kind of looked pitiful um, in their game against Louisville. Well, uh, Florida State answered to the tune of a 55-35 blowout. Uh, I, I'll say blowout um, because the score was a lot further away than than, uh, than the 20 points that it ended up being. Um, I will say this about South Florida. They did have 450 yards uh, total total offense and scored five touchdowns. Um, but thanks to uh, somebody named Cook, some guy named Cook, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of him. Uh, yeah, he's all, he's all right, you know. Yeah, he's my cousin. Yeah, my cousin uh, Paul graduated from UCLA last year. Now I got Josh's cousin doing some work down at FSU. That's right. <laughs> so Dalvin, your cousin Dalvin rushed uh, 28 carries, 267 yards, scored twice, and kind of just – Kind of just blew the game open uh, at the start with a 75-yard touchdown run. Uh, obviously, Florida State would need to probably finish this game a little bit better because uh, they were they had a even more commanding lead than that, and they just kind of they just kind of took the foot off the gas and allowed uh, South Florida to uh, close the gap a little bit. But I don't think they were ever worried. So I uh, just want to kind of give you guys a brief a brief look at Florida State and 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 maybe we just gotta you know take them off. I guess theoretical. Uh, I guess we can. Uh, I guess they can be a little bit back to normal here. Uh, Dalvin Cook finally got going, and then Florida State is uh, they're back on track now. What this does for the rest of their conference schedule, I don't know, um, but uh, they should be playing back with uh, a little bit of confidence. Yeah, and, uh, are moving forward. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see um, if they can beat Clemson and Clemson can beat Louisville. There's a three-way tie at the top of that division, and all those guys finish 11-1. and I'm not exactly sure what the ACC's tiebreaker um, protocol is in a three-way tie. So uh, we'll have to check that out for you guys if it comes to that. But my first uh, quick slam was actually the game that I attended yesterday in the Rose Bowl, which was Stanford's last-minute victory over UCLA. It was an absolutely gorgeous evening for football in Pasadena, and both the defenses came to play. Uh, UCLA's defense was, I thought, excellent uh, in containing Christian McCaffrey. He got 138 yards rushing, but he was held to less than 200 total yards for the first time in his last 10 games. And, you know, you have to give kudos to UCLA defensive coordinator Tom Bradley for that. They had a really nice game plan. They stacked the box. They made um, – and they were blitzing a lot, especially on passing downs. And they were really stout the entire game until the last drive of the fourth quarter. Um, they, what happened, you know, going in, there's a minute 40 left, UCLA punts the ball away to, um, to Stanford, to McCaffrey at, at the, who fair catches it at the 14. And of course there is uh, kick catch interference. So 15 yard penalty there. So Stanford starting at the ball with at their own 29 with a minute 40 left. And instead of keeping the pressure up on Ryan Burns, the Stanford quarterback, they went with a prevent D and like it always does, it prevented them from winning. Um, the Stanford senior quarterback just absolutely picked them apart on a final drive uh, using the big physical receivers that they have to just go down the field and, and you know, box out the, the UCLA corners. They stayed away from uh, UCLA's top corner all, all night and were just going to the other side of the field. But um, really, the, the true story of this game is the, is the player of the game is Stanford defensive lineman Solomon Thomas. He was an absolute wrecking ball. He's only credited for three sets. Three tackles, a sack, and a fumble recovery, which was the last play of the game on a Hail Mary attempt by Josh Rosen. Uh, he picked up a fumble and ran it back for a touchdown, which didn't really matter at that point. But he was in the backfield the entire night. He just he lived there, and he absolutely abused UCLA right tackle Colton Miller. Uh, in, the, in the first half, he could not be contained. They started double-teaming him in the second half, and they still couldn't contain him. He was an animal out there. It was He was head and shoulders above everyone else, the best guy on the field last night. So uh, the Bruins had a lot of chances 
But at the end of the game, at the end of the day, they took their foot off the gas on defense and it really cost them dearly. But both teams came to play. It was a really, really nice day. Um, they had all of, uh, they had UCLA Olympians from every Olympics since 1952 on hand, uh, at, that were celebrated at halftime. It was a really cool little, fest and uh and you know i had i had some really nice seats uh, about 17 rows back on the 20 yard line and it was just it was a gorgeous night for football and a really really fun game to be in the house for so uh josh we'll throw it out to you for your second quick slam and you're going to take a look at the other division of the big 10 yeah the western division so uh obviously as i alluded to we will be talking about wisconsin more in depth uh, but they are a part of three undefeated teams that are in this division uh, just like the East. So a lot of undefeated teams early on. Uh, Nebraska is with them. They got a conference win just up the road in Evanston. A really nice 4-0 start for them. That defense again showed up, holding the Wildcats to just 13 points. Uh, Northwestern, a 1-3 start. Not too surprising to me, but still has to be kind of deflating after a 10-win season a year ago. Uh, Minnesota was off last week, and with so much happening, it felt like they were off for a month. It was crazy, but uh, they are 3-0. They they handled a very pesky Colorado State team last night. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what the ceiling is. They've played three uh, teams all at home. None of them are power conference teams outside of Oregon State, who's Barely a power conference team. Uh, they've also played an FCS school, so um, in addition to Colorado State. So still kind of an unknown uh, gopher entity. Purdue picked up a nice win. They played Nevada. This is a Nevada team that has a really strong running attack, and Purdue's rush defense has been non-existent so far. I actually picked the Wolfpack to win, but Purdue came through with a nice win, and it's interesting that – Looking back on it, that of all the Purdue quarterbacks that started yesterday, the only one that actually won the game is the kid still enrolled at Purdue. I don't think any of us expected that. Uh, Illinois was off last week. Probably a good thing. They, they really struggled in their one and two start. Uh, North Carolina obliterated them. Western Michigan obliterated them. Uh, we thought that Lovey was going to be a good coach and that they went five and seven last year. I had them pegged as a bowl team, but uh, something's just not going right, and it's really on the defense. This was a good defense a year ago. They've already given up 85 points in three games. That won't cut it. And that leaves just my Iowa Hawkeyes, who played about as stinky of a game as humanly possible yesterday, way out at Rutgers. So, can I interest you in 13 combined punts? And the final score was 14-7. to seven. It was one of those days Iowa's offensive line uh, had glimpses, most notably on a 99-yard touchdown drive. Um, and the running game averaged over five yards a carry, but Bethard got tattooed. It was just 12 of 23, hurried all day. Their pass protection is not looking too good. And then, you know, just more more questionable coaching decisions. And the one that really just absolutely pissed me off is – uh, Iowa scored on that 99-yard touchdown drive with 30 seconds left in the first half. After the touchdown, on the point after, there was a roughing the kicker. So the kick came out to the 50-yard line. Rutgers had done nothing all day. If there's ever a time to do an onside kick, try and, you know, jazz the team up, do it there. Rutgers was, I'm almost, yeah, Rutgers was out of timeouts and there was 30 seconds left. And we had all of our timeouts and the kickoff at the 50, and they just put it through the end zone. It's like, be aggressive. Come on. The, the way they're coaching games is so vanilla and so trying not to lose that they're putting themselves in vulnerable situations, and they really could have lost yesterday. So Hawkeyes, they're, they're on my list right now. Yeah, John, I, just to, I just want to touch on uh, that – Hawkeye Rutgers game real quick too because the Iowa offensive line does not look like a classic Hawkeye line this year. They are they are an absolute mess, and I'm really not sure why. Um, you know, well, I would I would point to they graduated their center. The center is the quarterback of the line. It, it just seems like a 
it seems like all the um, collapses are from the interior out. I would actually say the tackles are doing a decent job. Yeah, but, but, but everyone knows that now, and it's just you know bringing guys up the middle, and they can't yeah. seem they, they don't seem like they have their their calls on the line of scrimmage um, to you know pick up the blitz and adjust protection as they need to because Bethard doesn't really have a whole lot of time back there. They're not getting anything up the middle running the ball with Wadley and company. You know when they bounce it outside the tackles, they seem to be doing better, like you said. But it's 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 rough, and you know I don't think that. Uh, Kirk is going to be firing his son, who's the offensive line coach, anytime soon. So, no, and and you know, um, you know, Ferentz coach offensive lines, and his son has actually been at Iowa for a while. Like, it, it's not like you know, Brian Ferentz came in and now the offensive line's terrible after one year. So I'm going to give each of them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt that they can figure some stuff out because. I just think it's it's youth right now, and like you said, teams are realizing that if they just bull rush the middle, it collapses. So uh, I have yet to see any screens. I think this gets back to the Greg Davis problem. I don't really ever see any screens. I think we did one or two yesterday. Um, we used to do a lot to wide receivers. I haven't seen a wide receiver screen in years. I think if they started having smarter offensive play calls – um, the offensive line issues wouldn't be so glaring. Yeah, that requires Greg Davis to actually have a brain cell. So, is it bad that I'm at the point where I'm willing to trade him for Cam Cameron? Uh, yes. Whoa, whoa! Don't don't make any <laughs> rash decisions now. <laughs> Good God. Well, I guess that segues me into my quick slam. Um, talking about. LSU, uh, talking about the Auburn game, and then I'll get some some scores from around the conference as well. Uh, But I'll really just focus on that game in particular because it had such a crazy ending. And uh, it was a typical SEC game where the the final score was 18-13. And the winning team didn't score a single touchdown. It was all field goals. And uh, John Carlson... The uh, Auburn field goal kicker got plenty of work. Um, and still, for Auburn, I mean, you got to look at you got to look at what kind of team and how they're made. And still, offense is is a mystery, and that's to put it mildly. It's it's a mystery. You never, you really never. Forrest Gump had his quote right: "Life is their offense is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get." And it, it's been it's been wildly inconsistent because they don't have a quarterback. They can't find an identity. They can't I, – I, I don't know what it is. And, and uh, I don't know if it's coming from Malzahn and his just inability to to really just find a quarterback, uh, adjust to that quarterback and, and roll, or if it's Rhett Lashley not developing these quarterbacks and getting them ready to play. I don't know if it's just these quarterbacks are morons and can't do anything right. Um I don't know if it's sometimes the play calls, there's breakdowns in the offensive line, and they can't figure it out either. Uh, or the running backs, they busted. T- I, don't, I don't know what it is. I mean, it's probably a combination of – it's probably option D, all of the above. But um, they've got to find some answers. You know, their you know their defense is carrying them week in and week out, giving them every chance in the world to score and put points up on the board, and they won't do it. Um, but – uh, last night was uh, was a, a good night for for Auburn's defense. They were just, they were just given uh, they were given LSU fits. They were all over Danny Etling. They just they they flew around, hit. They were physical. All that stuff you want out of your defense is, is what they were. Um, now, how this game ended um, is where the story is. Okay, because you know, I wouldn't normally be talking about eighteen to thirteen. Uh, snooze fest, but um, this was not a snooze fest. If you were watching the end of this game, um, LSU had the ball. They got an illegal shift penalty, and that set them up for a, for a last gas fourth down play from the 15, where they had a shot thrown to the end zone. Well, as they're as they're lining up to get on the ball, you know the the clock stops briefly uh, on a penalty, but they they usually reset reset the clock and they're on the clock. But 
so what LSU had done is, is they realized that they needed to hurry up, and there was, you know, there was like one second on the on the, on the clock still when the, when the officials huddled and they called the middle and all that stuff. Um, when they blew the dead, when they when they blew the dead, when they blew the play back, when they blew the ball back into play, um, you know, L, what LSU was trying to do was they were trying to get ready and set on the ball before the referee blew it into play. Um, they were still a little bit discombobulated, I guess, trying to figure out what, what the play was. And then, you know, um, time expired on them. The refs didn't quite catch it. They threw a touchdown pass, even came off the bench and celebrated and, you know, did all that stuff. And, and they, they put the play under review and they, they decided that it was, uh, they didn't get the playoff. It was the right, it was the absolute right call. Um, a very, very lucky break for Auburn, but, you know, they're sitting here. Uh, they've knocked out LSU. They've knocked LSU out of the race, out of the rankings, all that stuff. So, um, uh, you know, sometimes when you're struggling, you need that little bit of luck to, to get you back in the right direction. But a very controversial ending. But I do think this is one of those instances where I know we're usually hard on the referees, but this is one of those instances where they uh, they got it right. You know, they reviewed it, got it right, made sure they got it right, and uh, and, and and did the right thing. So. Uh, big ups to the referees in this in this contest. Uh, big up to Auburn's defense and uh, Cam Cameron's still got to find some answers too. So, uh, very weird game. But uh, some other scores going on. All well, actually, before, before you do the scores, coach, I got a question for you about Auburn. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure people necessarily realize based on their one and two start that their defense has been playing so well, and I think some people are just kind of assuming that. LSU's so vanilla, and Kevin Steele going against his old team knew exactly how to stuff them. But, I mean, the the one and two start wasn't on the defense. They they were amazing, holding Clemson to 19 points and A&M to 29 in losing efforts. So I, I was just curious, what is Kevin Steele doing? Because this was, you know, this defense was Swiss cheese a year ago. How did he have such a big turnaround so quickly? Well, you know they've always recruited well. Um, they have, they have four or five star kids over there. Um, I just don't think. I just think that he simplified uh, and, and just allow them to play fast and allow them to be in the right spot and know where they're supposed to be and how they're supposed to fit up against different things. I think sometimes uh, defensive coordinators can complicate things, and I do think that's what. Uh, Muschamp had done, uh, I, and I don't think they fully bought into Muschamp, um, so I don't think they were playing as hard. But um, you know, I, I think that coming in sometimes is just simplifying and allowing your guys to play fast and 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 become experts at simpler things versus being mediocre and and have a variety of things. So um, that's probably the main key, and just getting guys in position to make plays. And when you get talented guys in position to make plays, they make the plays. Not. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, let me get into my uh, my final quick slant of the day, and that is going to be a recap of our game from last week, uh, which was the uh, from our preview show, which was Washington coming up big in overtime to win over Arizona and Tucson, thirty-five to twenty-eight. Now, you guys both dismissed the Wildcats' chances on our preview, but I was a little bit more bullish on Rich Rod's squad, and uh, you know, I was really impressed with the Wildcats' quarterback Brandon Dawkins. He was starting in place of injured a new Solomon, and he was great for Arizona. He threw for one sixty-seven and a touchdown, and ran for another one. 76 and two more touchdowns, uh, including a huge 20, uh, sorry, 79 yard run in the second quarter uh, that sort of uh, that actually put Arizona in the lead for a little while. So he also led them on a late 75 yard drive in the fourth quarter, to, which ended up tying up the game, capping it off with a nice TD pass to Josh Curran. But in the overtime period, uh, the Husky D came up uh, pretty big and forced Arizona uh, to uh, have a turnover on downs, which ended the game after. Uh, after the Huskies had scored in the first half of the first overtime. So, but the strength for both of these teams uh, yesterday was definitely the ground game. Uh, they combined for 660 yards and six touchdowns on the ground, uh, headed by Dawkins for the Cats and running back LeVon Coleman or the Huskies who had 181 yards and a touchdown. Um, the kicking game is going to need to be addressed for Washington uh, because 
Uh, Cameron Van Winkle was asleep at the wheel uh, yesterday. He went 0 for 2 on field goal attempts from 40 and 45. And so in a lot of ways, Peterson's squad is really lucky to escape the desert with a win, but it sets up a huge game, definitely the game of the year in the Pac-12 North next week with Stanford heading up to Seattle for a big showdown of top 10 teams. So with that, let's head over and start with our deep routes. And, Coach, we're going to get this out of the way early for you. Uh, Georgia was absolutely routed in Oxford by Old Miss. So uh, fortunately for you, you were uh, distracted by other things yesterday. So you, uh, I know you watched the game but didn't have to pay too close attention to it. So what were some of your thoughts there on what happened to the dogs? Well, it, it, there's not much to say about it. Um, and thankfully, I didn't have to watch too much in depth because all I had to do was glance over, and, and uh, all I saw was Juwan Briscoe chasing wide receivers as they ran into the end zone, uh, um, or watching them and taking pictures as they leapt over his head um, to make catches over him in the end zone. That guy was absolute toast yesterday. Uh, the offensive line was terrible. Receivers were dropping passes everywhere. It just seemed like there's no energy and. Uh, they're feeling sorry for themselves a little bit. The heat was bothering them, I guess. Uh, they're not fully bought in. Uh, a, a large segment of the of the team is probably not bought in yet to uh, to Kirby Smart's way of doing things. They kind of like, you know, it's two completely contrasting styles between Rick and and, and Smart, uh, two, two totally different coaching styles. So. And some guys, you know, anytime you have coaching change, you always have the, the segment of guys who just don't fully buy in. Um, and then they tip, they're typically out of there really soon. So, um, it, you know, it's just everything coming to a head. All, all the problems that, that I've talked about the last three weeks just came completely to a head um, yesterday. And all of the worries and issues that we had against Missouri, uh, when you face a better team, that's what usually happens. You know, couldn't get anything going on offense. Chump goes out with a with an ankle injury. Severity uh, severity of that injury is unknown at this at this moment, unless you guys know something I don't. Um, it just watching it, I I felt like I felt like the play calling was ultra conservative, um, and I know Jim Chaney's better than that, which is why it disappoints me a little bit. You know, at some point you just gotta say, all right, well, if we're gonna if we're gonna get our butts kicked doing this, we might as well get our butt kicks to butts kicked just unleashing the whole playbook on this freshman, let him make his mistakes, and, and, and let's go. Um, Jacob Beeson didn't really strike me as a leader. Uh, I just didn't feel like I don't know. I, I just didn't. You know, how sometimes it, it, you can't explain it, but sometimes like they have that quarterbacks will have that it factor. Um, I think he's still. Uh, I, I don't think he's had a chance to leave because I think he's just still learning how to function against talent that's equal and or better than he is because he didn't have that in high school. So um, I still think he's just kind of – I think his head's still kind of spinning a little bit too. and He hasn't had time to be a leader. Uh, so I don't really know uh, truthfully what he's got as a leader, but he's just got to keep, keep developing and just keep trying to – you know, plug away and plug away and plug away. That's probably uh, – that'll be one of the best offenses Georgia faces all year. Um, and probably one of the better defenses they'll face all year as well. Um, yeah, you know, Coach, one, one thing that I noticed in this game was – I had it on while I was also watching the Wisconsin-Michigan State game. And, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, Georgia's stud tight end crew, but it was actually Ole Miss tight end Evan Ingram who was just gashing them. It seemed like they just completely forgot that Chad Kelly knew how to throw to a tight end. I mean, he had 95 well, yards and a touchdown, but he was uncovered so much. Ingram's their leading receiver. I don't know how they would – so, I mean, he's their leading receiver for the season. I know, and so, but so, and so they, they seem to forget about him, which was so shocking. That and and just matchup problems, you know. And when they didn't forget about him, he still made plays because nobody could cover him. Yeah, you know, he's one of those. I mean, he, he's a he's a Sunday player now, um, and I'll give him and I'll give him credit where credit's due. He's definitely a Sunday player. Um, Juwan Briscoe is definitely not. Sunday player, um, and he probably that that will hopefully be his uh, his last bit of defense. Um, you 
and hopefully he doesn't play a whole lot moving forward. But, you know, I'm Kirby smart, and I get my butt kicked like this. I'm, you know, this whole week of practice, I'm, I'm putting freshmen in and seeing what they can do. I mean, they can't do any worse, I don't think. And, you know, if you're going to, you're going to go down, you might as well, you know, do it with the older guys because, I mean, the current situation, I don't, you know, it has, we've been fortunate that it hasn't been worse. Yeah. The North Carolina game is starting to look more like the outlier than the Nickel State game. Yeah, definitely. Josh, you got anything to add here? Well, I mean, it was just kind of one of those games where, um, it was up against the Iowa and the Wisconsin game, and once Ole Miss starts steamrolling, I, I really had no reason to, to look in on it. But uh, my guess is, without having seen too much of the game, that you know that pick six probably really rattled Easton. They got into that 17-point hole after the first quarter, and um, Coach mentioned that they were a little conservative. They probably wanted to protect a freshman quarterback. Uh, I know the Missouri game was a road game, but, I mean, Ole Miss is a night and day different than, than Missouri. So, to me, this was much more of a, a true road test against a, like a legitimate, legitimate team, more so than the Missouri game. So, you know, that big a hole, trying to protect a freshman, that just throw that game plan out the window because, you know, it just snowballed from there. Yeah, uh, I would I completely agree with you there. Well, Josh, you mentioned the Wisconsin game, so let's get right into it. Uh, Wisconsin goes on the road to win in East Lansing for the first time in, since 2002 with a, a, a truly outstanding performance by the Wisconsin defense, holding Michigan State to two field goals and only one trip inside the 20, which was on the last possession of the game when they ran out of time. So 30-6 to six, Wisconsin. And this game was all about Wisconsin's linebackers, specifically Vince Beagle and T.J. Watt, were just absolutely living in the Spartan backfield, wreaking havoc everywhere that they went. Uh, so, Josh, what stood out to you about the Badgers in this game? Well, there were about three things that really, really stuck with me. And the first is Tyler O'Connor, pretty good quarterback, I still think he's pretty good, but his biggest game was against Ohio State in a torrential downpour and last week against Notre Dame. And it's obvious that Notre Dame has no defense. So, you know, he yeah, had, Notre Dame fired their defensive coordinator today. Yeah. So, I mean, he had three picks. Uh, a lot of them were because of Wisconsin just playing fantastic defense. Uh, and then when the league got bigger and bigger, the third and final one, you know, I, I immediately texted you. And I'm like, what in the world was he looking at? I mean, he, they were so far back. They were so rattled that he just, like, chucked it without even looking. And it was an easy interception. So, but like, like I said, my first point is Wisconsin's defense was just flat-out amazing, and Tyler O'Connor just got rattled in his first start against – a truly legitimate defense. Uh, my second point is Wisconsin kept running the ball, which was very, very smart. It, you know, 122 yards on 41 carries doesn't look very good. Corey Clement, 54 yards on 23 carries. That doesn't look very good. But it forced Michigan State to respect it. They didn't abandon it. I think if – you know, the, the first half was a little bit of a grind. You know, it was 13-6 at halftime. If they had panicked and you saw Hornibrook throw, like, 42 passes, they would have lost the game. So hats off to the Wisconsin offensive play calling. And then lastly, I mentioned it with the Georgia game. Sometimes, sometimes it's just not your day. And I think a good example of that is L.J. Scott – he doesn't fumble it that often, but when he does, you sort of don't expect a 66-yard touchdown return. Uh, and, and likewise, the, the muffed snap by the punter, I mean, those things happen, but they just seem to happen so rarely to a team as well coached as Michigan State. Uh, Wisconsin certainly outplayed them, but, but I do think there were, especially being gifted the ball at, at first and goal after that, uh, dropping the snap. I think that may have 
inflated the score a little bit, but the right team won, and this Badger defense, it'll keep them in any game they play. Coach? Well, I mean, I think Josh hit the nail on the head. I mean, you know, when you you, know, you get you get fortune and bounces, uh, that's always a plus. You get you get a run game that is just good enough to to uh, keep possession, run the clock, and and hold the front seven from just pinning their ears back and coming after you. You know, that's usually uh, and the patience it took for that was was impactful because. Most coaches throw that out the window, I mean, I, and, and I, I probably would have too. I probably would have said, "All right, screw it. Let's just see when we get through the air. We're, this, is not, this is not going too well." But they, they had the wherewithal to, to stick with it, and, and I like that, you know. And it, it kind of makes you think. Well, you know, here's an example of not being stubborn, but just sticking to your plan. You know, there's a, there's a fine line, and they walked that fine line, and they didn't uh, – they weren't stubborn with it. You know, they, they, they mixed it up like they needed to, and, and then the result followed. So, um, you know, a combination of everything going right for Wisconsin and seeming like everything going wrong for, for Michigan State was, uh, was the story in this one. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely was. And, you know, the, the Badger offensive line was very depleted. They were missing their uh, top two guards, uh, or top two left guards, I should say, in John Dietzen and Micah Kapoy. And so they shifted their center, um, Michael Dieter, to left guard and brought in uh, sophomore Brett Connors. And they didn't miss a beat. So you've got to give uh, offensive coordinator and offensive line coach Joe Rudolph um, a real tip of the cap there to – uh, installing a game plan that, yeah, they didn't get a ton of yards per carry, but like Josh said, they kept running the ball, and that was huge, and it made uh, Michigan State respect the play-action pass, and that was a, that was really big. Uh, Hornibrook had a nice uh, – seemed to have a really good connection with wide receiver Jazz PV as well. Threw a couple passes that only – you know, only the receivers could get to, you know, drop them right into the breadbasket. And it was a very impressive performance all around from Badgers. So let's move to our next game that we're going to break down. And that is uh, the big SEC West contest that uh, now undefeated Texas A&M won 45-24. But this was a tie ball game late in the third quarter. And uh, for me, at least, uh, the biggest the biggest turning point in this game was when Arkansas marches the ball 94 yards downfield and gets zero points on it after failing to convert on fourth and one on the goal line. Texas A&M gets the ball back after that, uh, scores a touchdown in three plays. And after that, it's, you know, um, you know, the game is pretty much uh, over. Texas A&M outscored Arkansas 21 to seven in the fourth, but uh, uh, coach, this is your conference. So uh, any thoughts here on uh, the big victory for the A&M? Well, I thought it was a really well-played game for, for three and a half quarters. And, uh, you know, I thought, I thought Arkansas's game plan was, you know, was was solid. They were pounding them, pounding them, pounding them. They were physical. They were doing their thing. They were dictating the tempo of the game. Here we go. You know, they were hanging around, hanging around, hanging around. And you thought they were, they were, they were mostly in control of that game for, for a, a large portion of it. And then, uh, and of course, where the momentum shifted and where they lost control was when they got stuffed on fourth and one, uh, trying to score, and they came away with no points. Texas A&M roars down the field, which you can't have happen as a, as a defense after that. Um, is you can't have the other team go roaring down the field in three plays, score a touchdown, and you know that if Texas A&M is able to do stuff like that, now they can start scoring in punches. And Texas A&M can very quickly take back control of the game, um, and, and they can very easily – Put up 21 and 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 a, and a quarter, and they can do it quickly. They can do it off, and then once they start getting going, they start getting going. Um, and that's the thing you have to limit. That's the thing that Ar- that's the thing that Arkansas limited for a large portion of this game is they kind of had Texas A&M at bay. They were giving them fits. They were physical. They were controlling the clock, controlling the ball, um, doing a good job uh, of kind of just keeping control of that game. And then all of a sudden. A&M, here they go, bam, Trevor Knight breaks out, um, Trey Williams breaks out, uh, you know, they just started, it turns into a track meet, and, and 
that's what you can't have happen because Texas A&M will get the better end of it because that's what they're built for. So um, my initial my, my reaction is Texas A&M is they're not overrated, they're not underrated. I think they are just rated. Um, I think they're rated perfectly. I think, I think we kind of know what they are. Um, as well as Arkansas. I mean, I thought Arkansas lost to a really good team. So, you know, they have nothing to be upset about. I mean, obviously, being upset about losing is, is uh, natural. But, you know, I, I think they played a great game against a great team. And I thought that was probably one of the more entertaining uh, matchups of the, uh, of the night. Josh? Yeah, I have two quick things because I think Coach summed this went up perfectly. The first is I – fully doubted Trevor Knight in big games and he still has some big games. I mean, they have Alabama left on the schedule and whatnot, but my God, 12 of 22, 225 passing yards, two touchdowns and then running the ball 157 yards on 10 carries, two more touchdowns. Uh, that's what we like to call the Abe Lincoln when you have four scores. And then the other thing is, um, is when it comes to turnovers, they're good but they are absolutely outstanding when you turn around and produce points from them. So I was looking at the uh, old play-by-play chart to refresh my memory on when Arkansas had their turnovers. And uh, Arkansas fumble, three plays later, touchdown. Ties it up, 7-7. Arkansas fumble, eight plays later, a field goal to, to make it 10-10. Uh, then in the second half, uh, the A&M fumble that led to the long drive for Arkansas that didn't result in points. So a turnover on downs is also turnover. So that led to the Arkansas points. And then another fumble that led to a touchdown to make it uh, 38-17. So, you know, you give a lot of credit to the Aggies for taking those extra opportunities of possession and, putting it to the house or, and in one case, getting a field goal out of it. Because when you look at the time of possession, Arkansas had the ball for 39 minutes and 45 seconds. So A&M needed every little bit of possession time they could have. And when you can turn turnovers into points, you're going to win more games than you lose. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, Elsewhere in the state of Texas this weekend, uh, Baylor uh, came out with a nice 35-24 victory over uh, the Pokes from Oklahoma State. This game, these teams combined for more than 1,000 total yards, 1,015. But, you know, you think, oh, that many yards, there must have been a lot of points. Oklahoma State only scored 24 points, even though they had, uh, you know, nearly 500 yards by themselves. But that was because of uh, they got bit by fumbleitis. Uh, they had uh, four fumbles and an interception this game, plus a lot, plus a couple of uh, turnovers on downs. So just some sloppy stuff from uh, I'm a man, I'm 40, Mike Gundy and his squad there. So uh, Josh, you know what? What did Baylor do to uh, you know to, to make this uh, victory come true for them? Well, they had uh, Seth Russell put the team on his back, 18 of 28, 387, and four touchdowns. Huge because hey uh, guys guys I need to I need to break in for a second. Yeah. Um, I just got a thing on my team stream. LSU just fired Les Miles and Can Cameron. Woo! There we are news here on a legal motion, baby. Uh, yeah, wow, that is that is huge. Uh, let's talk about that here. In uh, I, you know what? Do you got you have much to add about this game? Well, I'll just finish my thought. Um, so. Baylor, as much as they pass it, I think what people don't realize is that Baylor normally has a really, really good running attack, and Oklahoma State shut that down. Baylor's leading rusher was Seth Russell with 65 yards. They averaged 3.7 as a team. Um, Incredible effort for Baylor to find a way to win when their normally rock-solid running game produced nothing. Coach, anything to add here quick? All right. To be truthful, I really – I was running around like a chicken with my head cut off on Saturday. So I really didn't get a chance to, to check out this game. I was I was mostly watching uh, – the games I really focused on um, were the Georgia game. I focused on that as best I could. And then after everybody left, I was able to, to lock in on the Florida-Tennessee game. So 
Well, let, um, let, let's hop into that Florida-Tennessee game there quick, which is going to be our last of our deep roots anyway. Florida got out to quite a start. They jumped out to a 21-0 lead there in the second quarter. But uh, Jalen, uh, sorry, Josh Dobbs uh, came to life after that, throwing for 319 yards and four touchdowns. So, uh, Coach, what were your thoughts there on uh, the Vols' performance? Well, the Vols, they, they didn't quit. I mean, they could have. Um, everyone had given up on them. Um, including myself, including Josh, who said um, that uh, Tennessee could use some new leadership. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I thought it was, uh, you know, I, I was, it was one of those games where Florida just couldn't seem to put them away. You know, Austin Appleby looked like he was on top of the world in the first half. And, and I thought Tennessee was screwed because uh, Callaway had muffed the punt inside the five-yard line. Why he's trying to fair catch inside the five-yard line is beyond me, but he, he, he yeah, dropped the ball. The game. On the, yeah, I mean, I'm sitting there going, oh, my God. Uh, you know, they're, you know, here come, you know, Tennessee's going to take this and run with it. You know, you can't do that. And then they go, uh, they get shut out on fourth and fourth and one uh, from the one. And, uh, and, and, and I'm like, oh, well, there you go. Tennessee just blew their chances. Florida's going to blow this game wide open. And it seemed like they did because they marched right back down and scored, kind of like what A&M did. Um, and then all of a sudden, second half rolls around. Uh, you know, I, I I took a nap from about five minutes to go in the second quarter, pretty much all the way through uh, halftime. And then uh, and then when I woke up, you know, the second half, and, you know, here they come, 21 to 3, 21 to 10. 21 to 17, and then boom, over the top to Juwan to, to Jennings. You know, 24 uh, 21, here we go. 31 21, and then 38 21. And then Florida added a touchdown late. Uh, it was kind of a meaningless touchdown, but I mean, they just, they just kept doing what they do, you know, kind of like what Wisconsin did. They just kind of do what they do and did what they did well. And they stayed with it. They kept fighting, kept fighting, kept fighting, you know, kept trying to give themselves chances. And then uh, second half, they took advantage of those chances. And, and, and Florida uh, just found a way to choke this one away. Yeah. Uh, Josh, what have you got to add here? Well, I want to say it's 80% Tennessee credit and 20% Florida blame. And I think Coach did a great job talking about the 80% of Tennessee so just looking at Florida, I don't, I don't think, I don't think they trusted Appleby enough. Um, you know, they, they turtled in that second half. They were up twenty-one to three, came out with a super duper conservative game plan in the second half. Seems like they just wanted to let the defense do it. And what built them the lead was they. You know, they let Appleby throw some deep passes. They, they had opportunities over the top in the first half that they completely went away from. And so I just don't know what McElwain and, and Nussmeyer decided to do. I don't know why, why go that way. You know, if, if you've got your foot on the throat of the, uh, of the opponent, why do you let them back in with a super conservative game plan? I, I don't get it. And then you saw Florida just, it unraveled. One, because once you take your foot off the gas, it is so hard to get back on it. Yeah, it, it, it really is. And, you know, I, I was impressed by Tennessee. I picked Florida in this game. And uh, when they were up 21 nothing, I was really feeling myself. I was like, yeah, I picked this game right. But uh, the Vols, man, that was uh, – that was quite the performance to come back and be able to, you know, because sometimes when you get torn down like something like that, 21 nothing early, you got your head in the sand. You're like, oh my God, what is going to happen here? Are we going to lose 50 to nothing? But, um, you know, I was also really impressed, coach, with your boy, Juwan Jennings. He had a big game, only three catches, but 111 yards and a big touchdown. So, um, you know, well, you know, with that, let's just talk here real quick about the breaking news that LSU uh, has fired Les Miles. So uh, Anne Cam Cameron reports are saying that uh, Coach O, Ed Orgeron, is taking over as the interim coach. 
which is, you know, Coach Orgeron is a, is a favorite of ours here on the pod. So, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we, we love Coach O, but we hate to see the Hatter go. Uh, this is a guy who in his years at LSU, uh, 12, 12 plus years at LSU was 114 and 34. So, um, Coach, like, break this down for us. Well, I mean, I guess that uh, the tumultuous relationship had had a lot to do with this as well. Um, you know, you you you're lackluster um, to your start this season. Uh, you get, I guess, you get it in their eyes. You know, Wisconsin's a lot better than they, than they want to give credit to, um, especially at that point. But they felt like they got embarrassed up at Lambeau against against Wisconsin. Uh, they just really haven't played LSU brand of football, and and uh, you know things are things. The relationship is pretty bad between LSU between LSU and Les Miles, and um, I guess we're kind of figuring out exactly how it all came to a head um, today. So you know to to lose to to an Auburn team that is just struggling mightily, I guess was the final straw. Um, I kind of figured Les Miles would be gone anyway. Um, I just didn't think he was going to be the first one to be fired. Um, he was second one. He was the second head coach to be fired of the season, so he's not the first one this season. Ron Turner of Florida International was let go earlier. So um, they're, they're bringing uh, this is you know really strange. You think they would have <laughs> fired him after you know a, a, after last season? Everything, all things considered, but uh, th- this is surprising. Ed Orgeron is going to be the uh, is taking over, um, not defensive coordinator Dave Aranda, which I think is an interesting choice as well. Uh, but you got to think, Josh, that they're going to be first in line for the Tom Herman sweepstakes. Yeah, um, and they. You mentioned how impressive you know one fourteen and thirty four overall, and it's a gamble. It is a gamble. I know they've been in the shadow of Alabama right now, but. You know, he's won so many double-digit win seasons. They need to hit a home run because, you know, you look at Auburn. They went with Gene Chizik. Yeah, they got they got a title from it, but that was a short-lived marriage. The Gus Malzahn marriage looks shorter and shorter. You can't keep getting these spin cycles. So uh, they, I think the reason they do it this early in the year is – You guys have it. It gives them an opportunity to put their package together. And um, this is not just a one-game reaction or a two-game reaction this year. This isn't even about coming close to firing him last year. This is actually several years in the making. So since they won the SEC back in 2011, you know, they, 2012 they win 10 games, 2013 10 games, 8 in 2014, 9 in 2015, but it was a little bit of, and this is going to be a tough pill for LSU fans as well, but it was a little bit of what Minnesota used to do, where they would lose conference games, but turn around and do well in the non-conference. And since uh, 2012, not counting the one-on-one start this year, um, they are just 20 and 12. In conference, and when you're LSU, when you're battling with Alabama, when you have national title aspirations, eight games above 500, that's not going to cut it. And they, the last three years, three conference losses, four conference losses, and three conference losses, you can't do that. That's what that's what really lost it. It wasn't in Lambeau Field. Those are just, and it wasn't in losing on the plane in Auburn. Those are just you know, symptoms of a bigger issue, which is Les Miles just was too faithful to an offensive scheme that was no longer working. People adjusted. He kept Cam Cameron around year after year, never developed a quarterback. And that stubbornness, you know, lost lost the fan base. And... That's always the beginning of the end. When your antics, your antics when you're winning, chewing the grass, blah, 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 goofy time management. When you do that and you're winning national titles, no one cares. But when you're doing that, losing four conference games, that that's when people turn. 
Yeah, absolutely. Do you guys have me again? Yeah, we got yep. you. All right. Yeah, I, you know, what what I was kind of alluding to is all that was, just, yeah, like you said, Josh, it was just cherry, you know, just exclamation points to, to the fact and solidifying the decision for LSU. I mean, this has been a long time coming for them, I guess, for the last four years because um, it hasn't been a rapid decline, but there has been a decline in what LSU has produced out on the field versus what they've recruited um, the people to do. And this, you know, I, I've seen this movie before, um, and it just, it just, the movie just ended for Mark Rick up, up in Georgia. It was the same kind of deal, except he didn't have the national titles to, to, to show for, for his efforts. But um, it was the same kind of deal. I mean, he, he was around for a long time, got burnt out, um, started losing more games than he should, and going one and eight against ranked opponents was uh, in, in his last what, four years was not a, was also not a good thing. So um, I, I've seen this kind of kind of thing unravel before um, for a successful coach at a school, and, and you know certainly uh, Les Miles maybe thought he was immune to it, and he's not. So um, kind of odd to see that coming now, um, but you know Ed Orgeron, I, I think uh, the reason they went with him is because of his head coaching experience already. Um, so they felt like he could, uh, and it's also his head coaching experience in this conference and in that division also kind of helped uh, their decision on making him the interim guy. So uh, I don't know what I don't know who they're going to go after. I don't know that Tom Herman's a legitimate target because I think Houston is going to do whatever they can to keep him um, so they can make a run at the Big Twelve. Um, I don't know where they go from here. Um, you know. There's a guy named Mark Riles that's available. Um, if they're willing to deal with some of the uh, extra extra baggage that comes with him, um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know where they go from here. So, um, but that can be kind of our coaching carousel show later on in the season. But man, uh, I guess all of our predictions of Kevin Sumlin being the first to be fired were completely wrong because they're going up unless Miles is searching for a job. I mean, I would, I would, I think they'd go after a guy like Lincoln Riley if they could get him. Um, yeah, that uh, would be a great, that would be a great target. Because you know they're going to go after an offensive guy. They're not going to go after Brent Venables, a defensive guy. You know they're going to go for an offensive head coach at this point. Um, yeah, and they should. And they should. So, uh, you know, I think Lincoln Riley, Tom Herman, those are going to be guys that are way atop uh, of their board. But we'll, we'll, we'll see, man. This is, this is crazy. Well, as we normally see with dominoes in this, you got Dave Aranda, who's built some fantastic defenses. Um, you know, Wisconsin, they were top 10 in 13, 14, 15. LSU's defense hasn't been the problem. He's only 39. Um, this might be what gets him a head coaching job because there's no guarantee that the next staff keeps him. So this could be a domino of, you know, a, a program might be getting a really young up-and-comer. It'll, it'll be interesting to see if that shakes out. I'm also curious, and I give this about, like, 1% chance of possibly happening, but if the LSU defense is phenomenal and they're like, hmm, Aranda is a buzz name, if they do want to hire him, and they make him their inner. They make him the interim coach, and he. Well, they've already made Orger on the interim. So. I know, but but I'm saying if they had made him the interim, and he fell flat on his face, then they can't turn around and hire him. But now, if an Ogeron takes all those hits, but the defense fantastic, they could turn around and be like, "Well, the defense was great this year. Dave Aranda's 39 years old, up and comer." Then it's easier to make that transition rather than you know, going with Aranda's interim coach, and he falls apart. This is, very, this is true. Um, one last name I'll throw out there, Lane Kiffin, baby. Oh, God. <laughs> here's, one, here's one to keep in mind as well. Um, I haven't really followed him too much, but uh, keep an eye on Seth Luttrell out at North Texas. I wonder what, I wonder what he's doing, what he's up to. I'm going to follow North Texas a little more closely now um, just to kind of see how he's doing. Um, and see how he's going out there. 
Well, this is uh, a topic that will definitely be revisited later this week on our Week 5 Preview podcast. But that's going to wrap it up for us today here on Illegal Motion. So on behalf of Josh Cook in the Second City, in behalf of the coach, Corey Burton, in Nashville, Tennessee, this is the professor, Matt Perkins, in Los Angeles, California, saying so long and see you next time on the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah! Thanks for listening to the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. To get in touch with the show, email us at illegalmotionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at illegal underscore motion. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.